Welcome back to the We The Patriots podcast. I'm your host, Sal Asante, and today I have a very special guest to me especially and, um, well, really to my life and my family, Father David Monteleone. Did I pronounce that correct? You did. <laughs> okay, you did, I'm Sal. Italian, but I'm not that Italian. You're good. You're good. You got it. Um, I've been looking forward to doing a show, especially with somebody of the priesthood for a little while now. Now, I, I don't want to jump into that too quickly, but mm-hmm. I do just want to mention you are the one who pretty much brought me back into the faith when I was at a younger age. So my view on things is a little bit, I would say, biased in a way. Okay. But I do want to go at this episode with a thought of how do we open up these ideas, even if it's not specifically Catholicism, how do we open up these deeper ideas to more people and get more people thinking about them? That's kind of what I hope this show kind of dives into and I think this is could not be a better person to do it with. Thank you. Um, Father, let's dive into, at least first, I'd like to talk about what kind of got you even leaning towards priesthood and how early on did that, did that come into your life? Very good question, Sal. I thought about priesthood when I was in high school, okay. but I also realized at the time I was too young to make a decision to enter a, a college seminary and like that. So I went away to school. I uh, got my teaching degree. I taught for many years. I dated, but the idea of priesthood never left me. And then when I was in my uh, mid twenties, uh, a new ordained priest came to our parish, and he really was very engaging. He was on fire with the gospel. He loved his priesthood, and he was really a very big inspiration. And because of him. I kind of took that first step and entered the uh, seminary. Okay. Um, but there was always a little bit of a, a nag that I wasn't quite really happy with what I was doing. I wasn't miserable, but I wasn't fulfilled. Did you ever play sports? Uh, when I was younger, I used to play soccer. And then for a little while, I did, um, uh, believe it or not, water polo in a long, a long time really? ago. Yes. Uh, but another that never life. really pulled you into, like, you felt that was a higher calling to you. Sports was never that for you. It was not. No, mm-hmm. no, no. Um, I, I could float real well in the water. So, <laughs> but, um, no, like I said, it was, um, you know, I grew up in a, a normal family. We were not overly religious or zealous. I did go to Catholic grammar school and Catholic high school. Okay. We went to church every Sunday as a family. Um, I was never an altar boy. Really? So, um... I, I can't say uh, I knew when I was 10 or 11 I was going to be a priest. And what about Catholic school? What was your relationship with that? Well, I had some excellent teachers. When I was in school, there were still nuns teaching in the school. They were, some, okay. they were very um, they were good women. I had some excellent sisters as teachers. I had a great lay staff. Uh, when I was in high school, I went to St. Anthony's High School in South Huntington. There were some very good religious brothers that were there as well. Okay. And it was a great atmosphere. Uh, but I never felt, you know, that this, I was going to be a priest and that was the end of it. Like I, my road to the altar was a little, um, crooked. It was not a straight line to speak. That's, that's really interesting. So when you started getting into, I guess, the business world, you started getting a job or out of college, what were you studying first of all? And what did you kind of, what did you realize in the, in the working field that made you shift? Well, I studied history and education, so I taught history for, for a while, and then I taught English. 
And while I was happy with it, I was never truly fulfilled. Like I didn't think I was in the right spot per mm. se. And um, it's interesting, even as a teacher, because yeah. you're in a similar way, mm -hmm. you're, you're helping out people, especially mm -hmm. younger kids. It's mm -hmm. very fulfilling. A lot of teachers that I know, mm -hmm. it's fulfilling. So it's interesting that you had an even higher call. Yeah, it was. You know, God works in mysterious ways. Mm. So He did not send me a text message or an email. You know, say, you know, I want you to be a priest. It was uh, moments of deep, profound prayer, mm. and you know. Um, I think that's very, very important for anyone, any, any vocation, whether they're going to get married, be single, or, or enter the priesthood or religious life. You have to have a good uh, prayer life with God. Mm. And sometimes people don't like the silence, but that is the only time that God can really speak to you, is in the silence. Isn't that correct? And isn't it funny that in this world, it seems like as a culture, we are just striving to eliminate that silence yes, in our lives. Yes, very much from so. The moment you wake up mm -hmm. until you sleep. Absolutely. Absolutely. And other than that, on that topic, I really kind of wanted to blend into what was it like getting into the priesthood? So as you started getting through seminary mm -hmm. and trying to find a job in the priesthood, or, mm -hmm. or what is it like getting a job in the priesthood? Well, um, I originally started studying for the Diocese of Rockville Center on Long Island. I was really from New okay. York. Um, you can hear it in my accent on occasion. And I was in the seminary for five years. And then as I got closer to ordination, uh, I got cold feet. And I left. And I tried going back to teaching, but there were no teaching jobs available. So then I became, I went through the executive program at Macy's. And I was in Macy's executive. And I did that for five years after the seminary. But even then, no matter what I, where I traveled, where I ate, what I bought, there was still a hole in me. And... Uh, a wise priest friend said to me, You're, nothing can fill that hole except God. Mm. And when it, came, when it came time for me to go back to the seminary or at least look for another diocese, um, I had priest friends in the Diocese of Brooklyn and their vocation director, Father Kevin Sweeney, uh, suggested that I go, go to try to Patterson and they accepted me. And Father Kevin Sweeney is now Bishop Kevin Sweeney of Patterson. Mm, I was going to ask. So... Uh, I, th I thought that was very interesting that the vocation director from all those years ago is now my bishop. Mm. But, um, you know, when you're ordained as a priest, you do take uh, a promise of celibacy and obedience right. and simplicity of life. It's not the same as poverty, chastity, and obedience. I mean, it is, but it's, obedience is to the bishop. So when I was ordained, Bishop Sartelli, you know, gave me an assignment. Um, there was no real... Um, talking of what I was looking for or anything like that. Uh, we, he, there was uh, 12 in my class that were ordained, and we were at a big table at the chancellery, and he handed out our envelopes, and on the front of the envelope it had my name mm. and the parish that I was going to be assigned to, which was uh, St. Joseph's in Mendham. And did you know that beforehand, or was that where you found out? That's the day I found out. That's awesome, okay. And I was very nervous because uh, the pastor in Mendham had a little bit of a uh, reputation of being very uh, strict, kind of right. challenging to work with. And while he certainly uh, was challenging to work with and was strict, I did learn much from him. And Generally you do from someone who's rigid. Yes. And even to this day we are still friends. Uh, several priests and I took him out for his 75th birthday recently. So we... Um, 
you know, he's more of a friend now, but I don't also live with him. So it's, maybe that's why the relationship is better too. Very fair, and you've seen your fair share of uh, livings that go each which way, good and Yeah. Um, rectory living is not for the faint of heart. Right. Well, it's a guaranteed roommate. That yes. you don't really get to choose. Correct. And, you know, you have to be somewhat flexible in living in a rectory. And even in priesthood, there are times to be, you know, rigid and go by the rules. And there are other times that you have to be a little bit more uh, pastoral or not so much look for loopholes, but try to meet people where they are and escort them and walk with them. Yeah, I mean, that makes um, sense. That's kind of doing your duty. So I try that. I certainly try to do that as a priest and as a pastor. But um, I had a, a th three great years in Mendham. They had a, a wonderful grammar school. The parents were so good to me and the children were very good to me. Uh, it was a very uh, happy three years. There were some challenging parts to it, of mm -hmm. course. Um, but it was, a, it was a good foundation for me. Right, so when you, I just have one more question on that sure. before we move on to the next chapter there. Uh, of the lot that you could have gotten that day, was there some, some worse places that you could have gone other than Mendham? Well, I, I wouldn't, there were other places that certainly could have been more challenging right. for me. I guess that would have been a better question. Yes, and you know, I think sometimes, you know, uh, sometimes people think if you're assigned to a wealthy parish, everything is going to be very easy. And what I have learned is that sometimes the problems of the well-to-do are more challenging than the problems of the poor. Well, sometimes isn't it just a question of size? Not always, but when it comes with bigger money, generally it's bigger, bigger problems. problems. This is true, yes. So that, I think that would bring us on. So when did you get, once you made it through Mendham, was that when you had your opportunity to take on your first, um, what, what would you... What My first pastorate. Pastorate, okay. Um, so your opportunity comes at that point, and is that guaranteed after that point? Well, you know, every bishop is a little different. Okay. So I can only tell you how Bishop Saratelli worked. After three years, um, in May of 2016, I got a phone call from him saying, Father David, I'm assigning you as, as administrator of Holy Spirit Parish in Pequannock. And that was the end of the conversation. <laughs> so there really was not much input on my end, certainly. And sometimes you, we, we want to see the hand of God mm. in an assignment. And I also sometimes feel that if you ask for something, you get it, and you're unhappy, you have no one to blame but yourself. If you're assigned or asked to take an assignment and you say yes, and after a while you realize it's more than you can handle, you can always ask out of it. Mm -hmm. So as my mom would say, be very careful what you ask for, you may get it. That's very fair. But um, I was only ordained three years, but I was ordained later. I was ordained when I was 39. So I was a little bit older when I was ordained. Uh, the bishop must have felt I could do some good in Pequannock, which I, which I believe I did do. It was a great first assignment. I have uh, wonderful parishioners that I met there, very supportive. The, the parish when I arrived needed a little TLC, mm. and I was able to do that. I was able to uh, certainly make it bring it up to date with certain things, do a lot of deferred maintenance that had not been done in a long time that needed, right. needed to be done. So, you know, as a role of pastor, 
you really are juggling being a buildings and grounds manager and being a shepherd of souls. Would you mind talking about that a little bit? So, sure. I don't think anybody realizes the fact that the priest of the parish is also maintaining the finances on pretty much every front. The pastor, the pastor of the parish. Right. The pastor. pastor of the and parish. And if they're not, they're delegating. Correct. And while you can certainly delegate if you have people to do that, but Holy Spirit was a very small, small church, church, so, you don't so really it have was that. me. I was, you know, the, as uh, an old saying, uh, the head cook and bottle washer. So I, I was the CEO, I was the business manager, I was the grounds manager. I mean, I did have some people working in those jobs, but in the end, everything came to me. I oversaw it. I had a great team, I had a wonderful business manager, a secretary, I had an outstanding uh, maintenance man who knew every nook and cranny of the building, of the church building, the rectory, the convent and the school, so I was very blessed. I had some really good people. And when the parishioners see that you love a place and you love them, they're willing to help you. Right. So it did not happen overnight, obviously. It took a little while, but eventually people saw that I had uh, their best interest in heart right. and the parishes. I think that that goes both directions, though. So as that slow love comes on and they're like, oh, we, we really believe in this guy and this guy yeah. really has it out for us, it goes in both ways, too. And I think, uh, you know, a good example of the opposite, of course, would be One Town Over in Mobville. We've mm -hmm. talked about it so many times, but you see the opposite happen, I think, a lot nowadays. Well, what, what you know... To you? Do, what, do you, what would you attribute to that? You know, not every priest is made to be a pastor. Mm. And there are different styles. Some styles work and others do not. I can only be myself. So while I learned from my first pastor in Mendham, I also learned sometimes what not to do. And that could be said of when, even when I was a seminarian, I was with other parishes, and I could see what some of the good pastors did and some of the things they did that did not work so well. So I try to, at least now, I try to think uh, very carefully before I give a, a, a yes or a no to someone. Mm -hmm. I, I try to choose my words carefully when correcting someone. And I try certainly to be welcoming and to listen. I think that's the, what people want the most, someone to listen to them. Mm. Not a bad quality in a person. No, no, it's not. So... But I also have to leave room for God because in the end, I'm an instrument of God and I have to, if something happens good, I have to give God some credit for that as well too. It's not just Father David, it's God working through me. Well, proper Catholic. And as you speak it that way, do you, do you feel that other religions, as you, you, I'm sure you've had to do a lot more studying of them than I ever have, mm. do you feel other religions allow for that ability to to really work through the religion rather than putting all of the weight on your own shoulders, or is it really a, a, a Catholic outlook? Well, I mean, certainly I think depending, there are certain Christian denominations where the pastor can set the tone for the parish or the mm -hmm. rabbi for the temple. I can only tell you from what I see with my friends who are pastors and neighboring parishes, um, how they work or how perhaps they do not work. I. I believe that if a priest is himself, the people will love him for that. 
you know, uh, you can fool little children, you can fool adults sometimes, you cannot fool little children. They will see right through a fake smile and things of that nature. So I always try to be as transparent with certain things as I can. I couldn't, I couldn't say any better myself. It's a good thing that you have this job and, <laughs> and really not me. Um, one thing I, I really wanted to dive into was the transfer over to um, a, a time in everybody's lives when I think everybody felt challenged and it wasn't just people of faith. You know, we, we take it on ourselves as Catholics to try to bear the brunt of the, of the world's sins if we really try to be good Catholics mm -hmm. and read the scripture. During the time of COVID, everybody got impacted by this. Mm. When we got impacted as a faith community, I mean, for myself, it was you couldn't go to church anymore, mm. especially when, when I didn't know you at such an intimate level, right? Mm. I didn't know how to access certain things, and it was mm. video only for mm -hmm. quite a bit. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What was the other side of that? How did COVID really affect you? You were still in Pequannock at the time. I was. Before you moved over here to St. Philip. Mm -hmm. And it was a smaller church. You had a lot less, um, a lot less people to try to reach out to. Mm -hmm. So what were the challenges and how quickly did they come on? Well, it was supposed to be a two week pause, as you know, and it turned into something much longer and worse than that. I think the, I think we, we sprang to use technology very quickly. Mm. Uh, one of the ladies in the parish, Kim Rizzo was, you know, so gracious to uh, tape the mass every Saturday evening mm. and upload it for Sunday for people to watch. Um, you know, we came together and there were other people that were very helpful that would come and do the readings for me. And, and you know, we kept six feet apart. I think there was a lot of unknowing. I think that there was a lot of people suffered from uh, loneliness and depression because they were self-contained. We were told to stay away from each other. It was a challenge of, of our faith. Is this the end of the world? You know, what has happened? We didn't know a lot of answers. And I think that, that upset a lot of people. And there was a sense of vulnerability that we've never had before. Uh, you know, I am not one to live in fear. And the only time I ever got scared during the pandemic is when I went to Stop and Shop and saw how barren all the shelves were mm. of flour, of cake mix. There were no, no meat in the first, meat. That, first, that week. first week or two. And I remember walking around and I said, and that is the only time I got scared. Mm. And thank goodness I don't eat terribly much. But nonetheless, you want to have food in the house. Correct. And it was, you know, in the middle of March. It was, um, we had just begun Lent. And, uh, you know, it was... You know, I live alone in the rectory, but then not to have anyone come in to celebrate Mass privately by yourself without a congregation, it got very, I don't want to say I was, I wasn't lonely, but I was just bored. Hmm. You know, the school was closed. You couldn't make trips to visit people. You know, I didn't, I didn't go to Long Island. Uh, I stopped from early March until Mother's Day weekend of 2020. So I didn't see my parents uh, for over two months. I did speak to them on the phone quite often and did FaceTiming, but it's certainly not the same. No. I can admit this now. Um, one of my good priest friends 
uh, that first week and he goes, uh, David, come on over. I'm having dinner for, with a few guys, come on over. And I said, you know what, I'll bake. So um, I went to this priest's uh, rectory, there's four of us there. And for the entire time of the pandemic from that first weekend in March till uh, Memorial Day weekend, we had the Sunday night supper club we called ourselves. And myself and this other priest would rotate hosting the same group of priests each week mm -hmm. for dinner. And that gave me such hope. And uh, even though it was a lot of, sometimes it could be a lot of work cooking for, for the priests, it gave me purpose. And I realized I had a talent for baking, which I did not really know until then. Uh, it gave a sense of community and it made me feel a little less alone. I would say that sense of community definitely helped you with that. Yes, moment. it did. Um, it was, and none of us, for those two months, two and a half months, ever got COVID during that period. Some got it after that, but we having those Saturday evening supper clubs, uh, Saturday, Sunday night supper club, none of us ever got sick. Mm -hmm. Goes to show. Uh, I mean, we had countless examples of guys being sick that were in close proximity. Correct. And at, now, this is outside at my work, so mm -hmm. it's a good mm -hmm. example to show that if you're outside, you have pretty good safety, or if you keep your distance, yeah. pretty good safety. I mean, we were around my dining room table and my other friend's dining room table several, you know, you know, four times a month for two and a half right. months. No one ever got sick. Yeah. And then, I mean, at what point did you start having our, you know, our little get togethers? I, I think that I, was pretty important. Yeah. I, you know, there was a, a group of uh, young men like yourself in the parish who uh, love their faith, wanted to talk about it. And I felt, you know, if I have this rectory, and I like to entertain, I should open up to some of the, the you know, some of the men of the parish who'd like to come together for an adult beverage, some or appetizers, and talk about faith, politics, and the world. And uh, I was very glad I did that. And I think anyone that I invited was always very happy they came, certainly. Mm -hmm. And I felt at that, at least after we were able to open up a little bit, there was a need for that, uh, for the camaraderie, the companionship, but also to people to uh, share ideas and thoughts in quote unquote a safe environment, you know. And what I mean, at the time. yes, you know, in the summer of 2020, we had uh, riots and a lot of political uprising and uh, things that I did not think I'd ever witness in my in my life. But I think, you know, for a like-minded group of Catholic men to get together as, uh, as the pastor, I felt I should encourage such meetings and I have no problem opening my rectory. That, that seemed so inspired in the moment. I think that's why it, it was kind of important when it did happen. Mm -hmm. But had you been a part of anything like that growing never. up? Or? Never, uh, never, never. I, I just... Um, like I said before, I felt I had an obligation uh, to have some guys over just to relax, uh, look at other people besides their parents. And like I said, uh, I've often found when you serve good food, people come back again too. But also just for good conversation as well too. And that, like, no one was going to be judged for what they said or what they spoke. People did not agree no one was going to have a punch thrown at them or anything oh, like no, that. Oh, no, normally turns you know? to laughs. Yes, anything. yes. You know, I think that's something that 
we need to do is have more discussions in the society and not a shouting match. I could not agree more, especially in light of the pandemic. Yes. I think that's I think that's a huge, huge yes. course of action. Hey, it's Sal from We the Patriots Podcast. Have you ever felt like, especially with our show, the topics are just jumping around or it's moving at a speed that you don't even know if you can follow everything? Well, over at WeThePatriotsMedia.com, you can follow a little bit more in depth and even get access to content that might explain a little bit deeper what we're talking about on our show or why we think it might be so important, whether that's in a blog or that's in our bonus content. You'll be able to find something that might fit your answer to the question a little better, or you can even send us messages or contact us directly through our website. So that's WeThePatriotsMedia.com. Go check us out over there for bonus content, our shop, and really any other way to further discuss rather than staying on YouTube or Spotify. I'll see you over there. So when coming out of the pandemic, I think is another crucial thing, especially to ask someone like you, do you see often that people that seem to be um, maybe just stuck in that time or um, maybe un unreasonable about their outlook with it to the point where it lets them, it affects the rest of them? Well, I think there were many people I knew like that who were afraid to leave their house, afraid to go anywhere without their mask. Af yeah, after the like, yeah, like after uh, you know shots are out. Yeah, and, you know, because it lasted a long. It time. It did. I mean, there are still people that go around wearing masks, and I, again, I do not want to judge them. It just I don't want to be judged for not wearing a mask. Right. I feel that I have done my due diligence. I have been vaccinated. Uh, my doctor has said to me that you're in good health, you don't have any pre-existing conditions, and you have an immune system. So he, he said that I don't see a booster helping you. Right. If he told me something differently, I might listen to him. But right now, knock on wood, I am in good health. And you know, I try to give people hope. I think that's one thing a priest has to do. And even in the scripture, St. Paul tells uh, us in his writing, rejoice and hope. And after the pandemic, there was very little hope. Mm. And I think also the, the political world that we came into was not good either. And, you know, mistakes were made on both sides of the aisle. Certainly, I can say that. Mm -hmm. But I, I think, you know, as a priest, you have to always have to encourage people that there is hope, that we're not going to be in this moment forever. Right, I think that you were one of the, one of the champions. You know, I, I, I tried certainly, you know, how, how can you preach something if you don't believe it yourself? Right, you have to believe that we're coming out of it. So I, I, I tried to steer Holy Spirit the best way that I could. I certainly followed the rules of the CDC, you know, you know, six inches apart, every other pew. We had reservations for, uh, like, uh, for uh, Easter Mass, yeah. for, for Christmas Eve Mass. Masks were mandatory, you know, we did the best we could. Mm. And I'm most grateful that so many people did come back to church. I mean, a lot of people did not. I think live streaming the mass made it very easy and very comfortable for people, too comfortable. But I also, not too long ago, a lady uh, ran into me in the supermarket and goes, you know, Father, you don't know me, but I'm one of your parishioners. I have two autistic children at home and it makes it impossible for me to go to Mass, but by you live streaming it, I feel connected to the parish still. So when you hear something like that, how could I stop it? Right. You know, like, right. and even if we have parishioners who are 
elderly and are homebound, not because of COVID, because just age and frailty, they can still feel connected by watching their parish right. on TV. But there are many people who just became very complacent and just turned on the TV, had their orange juice and bagel. And they were not going to go to church. And they're not going to go back to church. And the problem with that is that live streaming will never take the place of receiving the Eucharist itself. Okay. Isn't that pretty specific to Catholicism, though? It is. We believe that the bread and wine are transformed into the body and blood of Christ on the altar. And to be a good Catholic when you attend Mass, if you're in a state of grace, you would receive Holy Eucharist. And if you're able. And if you're able to, certainly. But, you know, live streaming, you're not receiving the sacrament, and that's what you're there for. Correct. And, you know, uh, the Eucharist gives us the strength to, uh, you know, gives us strength for the journey, gives us strength to try to live a better, uh, be a better person. You know, it is said, you, we become what we receive. You know, if you're and nothing, that's, yeah, if, it's you know, it's, it is very different. And you know, Christ has no hands but ours, no feet but ours. You know, we are supposed to build up the kingdom in uh, what Christ is our guide and model, but to be active. Our faith is not a complicit faith, it's an active faith. So it's one thing to pray, but you then have to put those prayers and good words into action. Put your feet on the ground, correct? Yeah, I, I, it's like that. Uh, I always mess this one up, but it's like that saying when the guy's praying out for God to save him mm. and his whole house is drowning underwater and he sends out the helicopter mm-hmm. rescue mm-hmm. team in the boat. Mm-hmm. He says, oh, no, no, I, I can't. And then it all ends up with a, uh, an angel coming and offering to help. And no, God's going to come and save me. And then he drowns and mm-hmm. it's God in heaven. Why didn't you save me? Well, did you not want to accept the lifeboat or the helicopter or, or the, the angel? angel? Yeah. So, you know, I think that's something that, you know, our faith is one of action. I think Catholic just is not a uh, faith, but it is also an action as well, too. Absolutely. I, I could not agree more. And that, that's kind of a good way for me to at least poke a little bit into you. You were forced to study or at least uh, approach things from a f- philosophical point of view. I was, And yes. was there any side of philosophy outside of religion that interested you or, or kind of made you think think a little bit deeper, want to approach things deeper? Because you were a pretty well-thought-out man, and I would think that you're well-read. Where Was there anything that stemmed you in college to, to become more well-read or, or just more informed? I have to say, not necessarily in college, but when I was in the seminary, I did a year of pre-theology, and that was to get all okay. of my philosophy courses. Studying Thomas Aquinas, um, you know, to prove God exists. Uh, just fascinating man, fascinating work. Uh, you know, his logic. It's something that I think every person at some point in their life should read or at least study. Okay. It can be somewhat uh, intimidating, mm-hmm. but nowadays there are all types of books that really spell out St. Thomas Aquinas and his works uh, to reach the, every person's level, so to speak. So it's not as intimidating as, as reading the, his work, the Summa Theologica, would be intimidating to someone. When was it written originally? Uh, if, you, if, you, if you know, not to put you on the spot. I'm going to say probably sometime in the, in the 15th, 16th century. Okay. So it, yep. it's quite so a while ago. But it has endured yeah. all of these years. Um, today, anyone who wishes to become a priest 
starts studying philosophy, mm. the proofs of God and God's existence. And his, he does a beautiful job of it. I think that I'm going to have to dive into it. Yes, he's a great a Dominican scholar, great and, man of the church. And the only other thing that I had laid out as a, a real topic for us was that I, I wanted to talk a little bit about the fact that now with your, your new appointment here at St. Philip, and uh, it's definitely a, a larger parish for sure, but, but also to go with it, um, it seems that the bishop has trusted you with a little bit more, more responsibility. How is that? been for you and do you feel that it gets in the way of you um, having God work through you? Well, certainly, you know, I have uh, two additional positions. One is I am uh, on the priest spiritual life committee for the diocese. Yeah. I'm also a member of the presbyteral council mm -hmm. and that is a group of priests that meets with the bishop to discuss issues in the diocese as a consultative board, uh, you know, we don't necessarily take a vote and the bishop does what we suggest or anything like that. And the Spiritual Life Committee is that we meet several times a year. We plan days of recollection for priests for their spiritual well-being in the months of uh, December, usually for Advent and one in Lent. And every three years we plan a priest convocation where all the priests of the diocese are encouraged to go on a, not quite a retreat, but not necessarily a, a vacation, but there's usually a guest speaker and we usually go down to the breakers at Spring Lake. For three days, there's a, a speaker uh, usually talks to us about, um, you know, say parish management mm. or psychological issues or um, health and well-being, what makes a good priest, what makes them happy, you know, things of that nature. The the court, the the topics vary from year to year. So I have those two things on my plate. General priest maintenance. Yes, general priest maintenance. And I don't think either of these uh, positions have... Um, taken away from my uh, love of the parish here. Mm. You know, I think as a, any type of leader, you have to uh, manage things. You have to have good management skills. Sure. So certainly the parish comes first, then you come, and then, you know, your other committees come along to take care of. Right. None of those, the two jobs that I, that I have are not, I don't find them terribly demanding. Seem like they're very consultative. So yes, it, goes it is. It is. As you perform your job well during the day, it seems like it leads you into making good decisions at night. I, I think so. I think so. I think one thing that most priests do, or if they don't do, they should do, is take their day off. Mm. I think having day to yourself, away from the parish, is very important to decompress, to um, come back renewed and refreshed. You know, this week I have two funerals. I had two anointings today. Um, you know, there is a, a meeting on Friday afternoon. So, you know, my, my, it can be very, very busy. So on Wednesday afternoon, when I leave for New York, that two hour drive to uh, hour and a half drive is more of a decompression chamber for me in the car. It's not mm -hmm. torturous. And then when I get home, I can see my mom and my dad, my brother and my sister and my niece and nephew, and just relax. And, you know, not necessarily forget totally, but be away from the day-to-day uh, -day living of, the, of the, running the parish. Uh, yeah, I mean, I can only imagine when you're, when you're dealing with certain things, I guess, of course, you have every now and then, not every now and then, but part of your job, of course, is you have baptisms mm -hmm. and you have marriages, which are, which are very uplifting. Yes. Ways, but, of course, you also have to deal with with the other side as yeah. well, right? Yeah. So 
it, it plays both sides of the coin. It does. And I think one of the one of the things that you mentioned to me at some point was some of the things that people really don't talk about is when anything might involve a, a younger person or an infant. Um, I can only imagine the toll yeah. that it might take. That uh, does take a toll on mm. on a priest. I think it certainly does on me. Uh, two Sundays ago, I was the emergency line rang, and it was to anoint a forty-year-old who was dying of stomach cancer. Okay. And that was gut-wrenching mm. to anoint him and to have his uh, his parents sobbing in the background. It, it's it's it is gut-wrenching, and. Um, I usually try to hold it together, but a few times during that anointing, my voice did crack and quiver a little bit, um, you know, just out of your own sadness for the person. Mm. And uh, sometimes, you know, you're at a, you don't know what to say. So I always have felt, you know, say as little as possible, because right. there are no words that would be adequate to deal with that person's pain. So instead of looking like a bumbling fool and overstepping. and overstepping, just you know, say you're in my prayers, do your job as a priest, be compassionate, and then leave. I mean, you know, if someone wanted to speak to me, of course, I certainly would avail that. But usually, if someone asks you the question, then it gives you the opportunity yeah. maybe to say something. Yeah, especially if you were tied to that person. Correct. Correct. So that is very uh, can be very challenging. Earlier this year, I buried a two-month-old infant who died of a crib death. That was gut-wrenching as well again. And I pray I never see a casket that small in my life. That's, that's terrible. So, but you know, as Christians, you know, as Catholics, we are told to take up our cross and follow Christ. Mm -hmm. And there are days of sunshine, and there are days of shadow and sadness. Well, there's that flip side, too. Yes, absolutely. It is not just saying mass and blessing cars or baptizing babies. You're, as a priest, you're there at people's their highest point of their life and their lowest as well, too. Right. And uh, one thing I, I did kind of want to ask you a little bit about before we got out of here, <clears throat> excuse me, was the, the kind of intersection of the school and the faith. So, given that you kind of need to oversee that and it, you don't really have a choice, have, have you grown to enjoy that part of the job? Well, I love having a school on the premise. Mm. Uh, I grew up in Catholic school. I think they're an asset to the community. It gives the parents an option of getting their children a well-rounded education without things that children should not be taught at a young age. Mm. So many of our school districts are growing woke with um, sex education classes and uh, letting them identify as, as other than boys and girls. Um, it is a very strange world that is unfolding around us. I don't necessarily think it's a good world either, but here we put out a great product. The children are loved. Mm -hmm. They're taught their, their, not just the reading, writing, and arithmetic, but their faith as well. Uh, we have almost 350 kids in our school. We have two of every grade. It is a thriving school. I teach the eighth grade once a week. I make visits to the classrooms. Um, this, this morning, the uh, fourth and fifth graders, I gave a lesson to uh, liturgical colors and vestments that the priest wears for mass. And that was a lot of fun. And I also feel that my presence in the school might encourage a vocation to the priesthood as well. Just as, say, a mother and father have children and they bring new life, 
to encourage a young man to become a priest that's encouraging life in the sacrament. Right. Something that we've been lacking as, yes. as a faith. Yes. You know, uh, as I tell the children, my hair is not always going to be dark as it is right now. I'm going to get old too. And, you know, to say that one young man became a priest because of my influence or what he saw in me or how I celebrated the Mass, that would be a great comfort to me. Well, if there's one of my priests that I've had in the past to do it, it probably would well, be you. Thank you, Sal. Centric enough. Um, you know. So being that, that with that said, the Catholic school seems to be uh, one, of, one of the things you definitely promote of all things, even if it wasn't that you had one. Correct. Um, I didn't know that you, you'd went through it the, the whole way through your education. Uh, first grade through 12th grade, and then I went to a Catholic college. Oh, do you need to be Catholic to go to a Catholic school? No, you do not. But you are, but you, we have children of other faiths in our school. Uh, we have Hindu, we have um, a Sikh, but they have to take religion. They just have to. They have to take, it's part of the curriculum. And the parents do not seem to mind. And we even have had some Muslims in our school as well, too. Mm. And, you know, the Muslim people see Jesus Christ as a prophet. Right. It is, it is in their religion. It's in there. It's in the Quran. So with that being said, nothing that I've taught in religion class, especially when it comes to morals or values, has ever been questioned by any of the parents of another faith. Can imagine. Especially because you're teaching it in a way for kids to understand. Yes. You're going to have to say it in so plain of words. Yes. I, I found that intriguing because I feel like as of late, you're starting to see a little bit of a, a mix of Muslim and uh, Christian, not faith, but beliefs a little bit mm -hmm. because it's coming. I mean, it's something I feel like should have been done hundreds, of, if not thousands of years ago. Mm. We have similarities. It's in our There, there are many similarities. Absolutely. We need to come together in a good way rather than a bad way. I, I think if we concentrate more on what we have in common, correct. Then we have in that we do not have in common is a good path, you know. And a lot of Muslim family values are very much aligned with a Judeo-Christic outlook on life. Right. So that is where I find we need to concentrate on. And when I would yeah. teach, and if there are, I know I had two Muslim girls in my class one year, and I would ask them, you know, what does your faith teach about this? And most often, we were on the same page. Mm -hmm. You know, doing good works, being charitable, living a good life, um, you know, helping someone else who's in need. You know, I think those are all very noble things. We can't, cannot, some, I mean, we always, as Catholics, we always, you know, look at the cross as, our, as the greatest hope and great love of the world that God had for it. But at the same time, I think there is room for discussion with other faiths on how to build a stronger community and how to build a safe environment for our children and how to build, you know, a good relationship with each other and, and one of mutual respect, certainly. Definitely. I, and I think that everything you just said doesn't just pertain to any sort of religion either. It's every sort of little ism that we put ourselves into nowadays or every little category of person that is we we should see more of the similarities in each other. We we have a lot more going for our common good than for the common downfall. I agree. I agree. Um, Father, did you have anything 
that you wanted to wanted to say or, or maybe you wanted to mention before we got out of here? Maybe well, certainly I, uh, this past May I celebrated my 10th anniversary as a priest. It has, God has been much better to me than I deserve. Mm -hmm. um, I would know. I've, had, I've had three different assignments as a priest. Uh, and in the end, I've always been found if you are approachable, you smile, you take time to listen, to get people to, get people to know their names, they will respond favorably to you. And having a good sense of humor is very important as well, too. So I try certainly to to be that same person I was when I was ordained 10 years ago, a little bit wise, a little bit more beat up perhaps with certain things, but to just to always be myself, be approachable, and hopefully people can see God working through me. Uh, you've represented yourself very well. I try. Thank you, Sal. I appreciate it. It's been a pleasure, and I think that I'll have to have you back on again Hopefully next time, I think maybe we'll go a little lighthearted. Okay. And I think maybe get to know a little bit of just more of that side that I know personally. Okay. Honest. Sure, we could do that. Absolutely. Everybody, I hope you enjoyed it. And let me know also questions that you'd like me to ask Father David, maybe more pertaining to <clears throat> the faith. Um, things that we could dive deeper on to maybe get his thoughts on certain events that may have happened in the book. I, mm -hmm. I know that we've talked many times, especially at our little meetings. Mm -hmm. And he definitely has answers. So if there's anything for round two that you had in mind, let me know. We'll be straight okay. with Father David and we'll say after Christmas. Sounds good, Sal. Then calms down. Calms down again. Absolutely. Sounds wonderful. Thank you, Sal. Thanks for coming. Make My pleasure. Thank you. God bless you. Damn. I wish I were to fucking say I want to be something, not nothing. nothing. Trapped inside my dream and I'm running. Running, running away from these demons. But the feeling's so good, I'ma keep dreaming.